you'd like to make your way into the auditorium, we'll go ahead and start our Bible class here in just a second. Right. As we make our way in, it's certainly good to be here with the members of Southwest, and we're also very glad to have those of you who are visiting with us this morning. As we get started, for our members here at the congregation, we're going to ask if you're a daily Bible reader, would you raise your hand nice and high? We just encourage daily devouring of God's Word, allowing it to speak to us and shape our thinking and our lives. If you wouldn't mind, hold those just for a second. out there. Okay, thank you so much. A little circulation back into your arm there for a moment. Okay, we are glad to have you with us this morning, and if you'd like to bow with me with a, for a word of prayer, we'll start, and then we'll get into our, our materials for this morning's study. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are thankful to you for your love and your blessings that you show to us every day. We're grateful for your son Jesus and for the ability that we have to be rescued and saved and safe through him. We're thankful to you for your blessings of the church and the church family and allowing us to be a part of that here this morning. We ask that you bless all of the teachers in their classes this morning, wherever they may be. We pray for your blessings here as we continue our worship and our study today. We thank you for your love and your graciousness. We thank you for your forgiveness when we fall. Father, we are grateful for your grace and mercy, and we look forward to the day that we are home with you in heaven. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. I hope that you have your Bibles with you this morning and are willing to open up and read along. We're going to cover a number of different passages that all tie together to what I believe is one tremendously important theme. Two factors that I would like to mention for all of us. Number one, God wants you to be able to have a strong, a loving, and a peace-filled family. The other thing is that God himself wants to have a strong and loving and peace-filled family. And the two of those are meant to go hand in hand, to go together. Our topic this morning during our Bible class is about strong families making strong congregations. And there is meant to be this link that ties those together in a way they're not meant to be separated. So let's think for a few minutes about how we can make sure that both entities are growing and thriving the way that God knows is possible and the way ultimately you're going to want your family to be and to thrive as well as the congregation where you worship. Your strong, loving, and faithful family God's strong, loving, faithful, peace-filled families. If you were in God's shoes and you had a plan to send yourself, i.e. your son, to the world and be nurtured or reared within a certain family, how would you pick 
the figures to whom you entrusted the raising, the rearing, and the nurturing of your child. What qualities would you look for? I suppose in general people may say, well, we want to see someone who is um, at least comfortable enough to provide an education and a growth and a home and, and all of the necessities of life, okay? Well, we want some people who are steady and they're going to maintain their relationship together so that it's a, a stable and wholesome home, okay? And, you know, we'd like for them to be situated in such a place that they aren't maybe going to be assaulted too much by the temptations and difficulties of the world. Maybe some reasonable circumstances in which this child is going to be nurtured and reared. So when I think about where Jesus ended up and the family that God chose, I want us literally to talk about Joseph and Mary for a few minutes. Because when we think about the nature of the people God chose for the rearing of Jesus, there are some qualities or characteristics that come out that might be beneficial for me, Rick, to consider with regard to my home and maybe some for you with regard to your home and subsequently be tied to what it means to be a strong part of God's family, which is the Lord's church. So we open up to the book of Luke, chapter number one. We're doing this as a Bible class this morning, so I am going to ask people at various times to read a passage or two or, or maybe ask for your thoughts on, on a topic, and I'll repeat those so that everyone can hear, can hear well. But in Luke chapter 1, the story begins really with Mary. Beginning in verse number 26. Here is the angel Gabriel who makes an appearance toward this this young unmarried woman named Mary. She's going to be betrothed, we know that, but she's not married yet. And the angel is going to appear to her and he's going to introduce himself, you know, and and, uh, tell her not to be afraid. But he says in verse number 30, Mary, you have found favor with God. So already the Lord, before talking directly to this young woman, has found something about her that captures his attention and makes him think, this is the person that I want, to, uh, I want to call upon for this tremendous service. So Gabriel is going to explain to her what it is the Lord is wanting to do. Would somebody mind reading for us here in Luke 1, verses 31 down through 33? Nice loud voice. Excellent. Thank you very much for reading. Okay, so here is Gabriel saying, you're going to be the one chosen to bear a son for God. And he mentions here in these verses that God is going to give him the throne of his father David, will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And that's when Mary asks the question, well, how can this happen? I, I don't have any children. I, I, that's not my stage in life at this point. And then he explains how it's going to happen. Is it miraculous? Absolutely. Can we explain biologically how this happens? Cannot. But nevertheless, God made this happen. And so Mary speaks up and uh, hears this. And Mary said in verse number 36, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
Now imagine for just a moment. I mean, there's a bombshell, right? The angel appears and drops a bomb on, on Mary, and she hears this, and I would imagine the wheels are spinning. She's having to process what she is hearing. But by the time the end of this conversation arrives, what she says is, I'll do whatever the Lord has in mind. So she is cooperative. She is able to be encouraged. She will do what the Lord says. Next verses. When you get to verse number 39, in those days Mary arose with, and went with haste to the town, uh, town in Judah, entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. This, this is that relative whom the angel mentioned. And go in, and they talk, and in verse number 42, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. She claims and says, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to see me? And she's praising Mary and acknowledging that great things are happening, and she's here, you know, how how is it that I came to be a part of this and to see this? Then when I look down in verse number 46, my Bible has a little heading at the top. I don't know if yours does. Mine has a little heading that says the Magnificat of Mary. And it's this essentially song of praise or expression of praise where Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Because he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And she continues, and the reason is because God has chosen her to be a part of this unfolding scheme of redemption that uh, Jesus is at the heart of. All right, so why choose Mary? Humble circumstances from everything we know, and yet she demonstrates a willing attitude and and certainly an attitude to praise the Lord and recognize she's just blessed because she gets to be involved in this great redemption scheme. Now we're going to flip over to the book of Matthew, chapter number 1, just for a minute. Matthew, chapter 1. A little bit longer section, but not too bad. Would someone mind reading for us chapter 1 of Matthew from verse 18 down through verse number 25, the end of the chapter? Someone, nice loud voice. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much for reading. 
All right, what are the characteristics of Joseph that stand out in this passage? What are some things? His character and personality, what stands out? All right, he's a just man. Anybody else's uh, mind says just? Anybody else say anything slightly different? Maybe fair, reasonable, try to handle things in a, in a reasonable way. Evidently not someone who is prone to, you know, flying off the handle and doing some things that are ill-considered. Yeah. Okay, great. So we've got Joseph is a fair individual, a just individual. He's a trusting and an obedient individual. Excellent. Good. What else? Let's, we're going to hold those and tie them all together in just a second. What else do you see in here about Joseph? Okay. Okay, good. I, I love it, and I got pieces in stereo. It's great, right? It did, both of my ears are working. Okay, good. So let me just get them in the order they started here. Say it one more time. Okay, good. And we're going to hold on to that one for a minute in case you didn't hear. The comment is, Joseph had, re- had respect or regard for her, Mary, regardless of circumstances. Absolutely. Okay. And then, I'm sorry. Okay, great. So you guys are saying the same thing. The comment is that he had regard for her. He could have really caused difficulties or, or held her up, and he didn't do so. He treated her better than maybe someone else would have done that. Okay. So what's the issue here with Joseph with regard to the putting her away? What has he learned? What has he learned? Roger. Okay, he has. Well, but it's interesting. He learns. You're exactly right. I wasn't very clear. He learns that she is innocent. But prior to that, he came to be aware that, you know what? She's expecting a child. She is engaged to be married to me, and I know that this is not my child. And in average circumstances, i.e., taking out the miraculous elements that, you know, are a one-off that occurred here, he looks at this, and what does he think? He thinks already that we haven't even said our vows yet. We've just gotten engaged, which was a strong thing. We haven't said our vows yet, and already... You can imagine broken hearted. I mean, you're talking about crestfallen, all these, you know, white picket fence, grow old together kind of dreams and ideas. And he would be inclined, I would expect, to think, it's already fallen apart before we even got started. Most persons, I would imagine, and certainly if you read, you know, tabloids or follow, you know, Hollywood news, things like that, somebody would be raking another person over the coals, pleading their innocence and making their complaints to anybody who would listen. Which is why it's all the more impressive to us that, as you've noted, when Joseph finds out that she's expecting a child that he knows is not his, he somehow disciplines himself and his emotions so that he treats her in a way that, in his mind, addresses the problem. Yes, uh, this is a a deal breaker, (laughs) okay? But he doesn't try to injure her or cause additional problems. In fact, the Bible says that he tries to deal with this in a way that is uh, very low-key, okay? It's going to end. But he's not interested in branding her. Okay, now, another question. How does he know that she is expecting a child? How would a person know? Say it again. 
It's possible she tells him, yeah, although you've got to think that if that were to happen, right, it's actually a very good idea, but if, she, if that were to happen, surely she would relate to him the things she heard in the conversation with Gabriel, right? And so that what the angel tells him here may not be necessary. It could be confirmation, but it wouldn't be the initial acquaintance, right? In a time period where there are no sonograms and there are no testing and things like that, how could somebody tell that another person was, another woman was expecting a child? Okay, because there are physiological changes taking place. Maybe someone is ill. All of a sudden, a mother and a family knows, or you know, some some you know close family member might know. But then, after a little while, what? I heard it. Okay, we've got a baby bump, is what it would be called today, right? And so here is Joseph. Now think about that for just a second, because here is Joseph who sees this and thinks, "No way! I can't believe it." Are you? Sure? And finds out. But when the angel speaks to him in his dream and explains what is taking place, I like what was said before, I think Ken said it, trusting and obedience. And what does the text in Matthew 1 say about Joseph when he woke up after that night, that night's dream, his sleep and dream? What did he do? He did as the Lord commanded. Now, that's amazing. And has a child, verse 25, names him Jesus, just like uh, you know, instructed to do, told this is what he will do and what he'll mean to people. All right, now, next question. How long does it take? They get married, okay, that's fine, they get married and everything, but this child is born, and it hasn't been nine months since they've gotten married. And along the way, even leading up to the marriage, here is a woman who is going to be, you know, and she's, I'm sure, at that point showing. What would all of the people in the community around think, do you suppose? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. They don't know the story, or even if they heard it, they may think, you know, ah, oh, that's unbelievable. You're just trying to make an excuse to cover up your very bad choice or something like that, right? What I'm impressed with with Joseph and Mary both, number one, Mary lived it, and she would have been the object of criticism, no doubt. But here is Joseph, who willingly stayed at, his, at her side, I'm sure loved her, committed to God's plan, and despite the fact that people may be snickering behind their backs or poking fun or just being openly critical of them, you know, if that's his child, then they, were, they committed fornication. You know? If that's not his child, then how could he have a lot of uh, criticism falling on both of them? And one of the ways you and I can see that that took, appears to have taken place is in the book of John, chapter number 8. We might know it for the passages in verses 30 and 31. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. You'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. And Jesus gets down in the conversation with these Jewish figures, and they end up making the comment that said, you know what? We weren't born out of fornication, which is their very explicit way of saying what to Jesus? You know what? Don't you talk to us about parentage. Because I know for a fact that you were born seven months after your mother and father got married. Or something like that. And so what they're doing is they're slandering, sling, you know, slinging mud at him and his mother and his father. Now, the only reason I mention that is to realize that Joseph and Mary apparently 
would have had to put up with some level of that for the entirety of the time that they were expecting Jesus. And then whatever, you know, small town life, you know, it's easy to get lost in things in Austin because there's always a new face, there's always a new neighborhood, right? But small town Nazareth? It's not easy to get lost in the details, right? I, I mean, people would know, and they would talk, and they would remember. Okay, so what are some things we can say already about Joseph? Well, okay. he's coachable and teachable. He'll do what the Lord says to do. He's not a low-character, vindictive person, even when he perceives wrongly, but when he thinks that he has been wronged horribly. And then they end up getting married, and he does not worry. Would it, would it bother a person? I would imagine. But it didn't deter him from being her husband, Jesus' you know, father, dad on earth, and having their family life and being together. Right? So here's a person who really has tremendous character, it would seem. All right, Luke chapter 2, our next stopping point. We're just about done with this little portion Luke chapter 2. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. He may have been He may have been seeking answers. You know, this is a lot to take in and it's a lot to process. For those who may not have heard, uh, what Mike says is back in Matthew 1, verse 20, the Bible says that Joseph thought about these things. And you know, and and a wise move on his part to just hear this and to process all of this and make the next step be deliberate. And all of this from a, apparently a younger man. Typically in culture at this time, Jewish culture, the, the young man might have been in his late teens, could have been in his early 20s or something like that. The, the bride, probably younger, maybe middle to late teens, perhaps, would be very customary for this time period. We're talking people who are young, chronologically. And yet the type of character that they're exhibiting is very impressive. Uh, you know, maybe... Older, you know, more seasoned figures may not have the same type of response to the things that are unfolding that we're seeing here. So we come to the actual time when Jesus is born in Luke chapter 2. And you have the shepherds and you have the angels and all that. But what I want to focus on is when they come to the, uh, when they come to the temple, right? They come to the temple to present Jesus according to the law of Moses, which they are supposed to do. And and go through some rituals that are tied to the law of Moses. One of the things that we read here in this section, verse number 24, is that they come and they offer these turtle doves as a part of this sacrificial system with the birth of a child, right? Anybody remind us what it means to say that they offered these turtle doves or pigeons or birds? Yes, ma'am. Okay, good. They were poor. You have persons who had more, I don't know, more possessions, a little bit better off, could offer an animal, but God made provisions, you can read them in Leviticus, for someone who was of more meager circumstances to offer a bird. You know, it'd be a lot easier for a poorer person to have that animal than to, you know, a lamb or, or something. 
So what that also says, isn't it interesting? God did not choose persons to bear the son Jesus, to rear him. They were affluent. In fact, they were on the, we could say, the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. And Joseph is a carpenter working for, the live, for a living. Great, respectable, but again, God chose them apparently not based on their personal circumstances. He picked them because of their person and who they are. Okay, when we go just a little farther in Luke chapter 2, we look down at verse number 42, and they are going to the city of Jerusalem. It is the time to go and celebrate the feast of Passover, and the whole family is going, right? And they probably have cousins and aunts and uncles and, you know, all these kinds of folks, and they're making this journey from, you know, to the north more in Galilee down to Jerusalem. They celebrate you may know about the story or the account. They go back up, you know, north to their home. They're partway there, and they look around and like, uh, we seem to be short one sixth grader, right? Um, we're missing this. You might see Jesus, you know. And well, maybe he's over here playing with you know his cousins or something. You go, uh, no, we haven't seen Jesus. So they end up having to go back, and that's when they find him. And he's talking about spiritual things with some of the religious leaders. Now, one of the things, we could focus on Jesus and his activity here, and that's fine. But what I also focus on are the persons of Mary and Joseph. It has been 12 years since Jesus has has been born. And yet, here is this family, along with their extended family, and what are they doing? They are going to the city of Jerusalem, and they're going to worship, and they're going to honor God, and they're going to follow along with the things that God would like to see them as a nation do, They are alive in spiritual activities. All right, so let's stop for just a second, and let's kind of tabulate. First of all, we have Mary, who is told this is going to happen, and she says, I'll do whatever the Lord wants me to do. And then she's just thankful to the Lord, praising him, and and also giving thanks for the fact, wow, I, I get to be involved in this. I will be involved in this. Then when she starts known that she's expecting a child before she got married, she's shouldering the insults and the criticism that come with that. Then there's Joseph, who is not petty, and when he thinks his bride-to-be has done something wrong, he does not attempt to drag her name through the mud or embarrass her. He just says, I need to go a different way. When he's set on going a different way, I'm sure broken-hearted, And God speaks to him, he comes back to the plan at hand and follows through. And it doesn't look like it takes a lot of convincing. And he supports what the Lord says to do. When Jesus is born, he supports what the Lord says to do. All along the way, he never allows any embarrassment or any mistreatment by other people. The insults that we read about in John 8 do not sway him from being the person God wants him to be, Mary wants and needs him to be person he wanted to be. When Jesus is born, they go through the circumstances, the activities that they are supposed to do. Twelve years later, the only time we see him again, and what's he doing? Following God's instructions to go and engage in life in a spiritual perspective and to lead his family, to be a part of their spiritual life and activity. In short, I look at Mary and I look at Joseph. We see her more often because she's there at the cross. That's true. Joseph disappears from view, perhaps has passed away. 
Nowhere am I able to see in all four gospel accounts anything that speaks negatively at all about either of these two persons. I may have overlooked it, and if I have, I, I invite you to let me know, because it's, it's certainly possible. But I haven't been able to see anything that is stated negatively at all. What I do see is that it doesn't matter that they are higher or lower on the socioeconomic scale, we would say. What I see is a constant love for God, a willingness to do what he says, a willingness to honor each other, to rear a son and then later children in a very vibrant, apparently, a very vibrant spiritual home. And to do that as a part of just being the persons that God wants them to be. What we can say about Joseph and Mary is that they would lead their families spiritually from the front, not just telling their children, this is how you ought to be, but living it, demonstrating it from the time before children even arrive. God chose them to rear Jesus because of the character that they displayed already, and God knew this type of family is where I want Jesus to be nurtured and to grow up, and to develop. Question. Is there anything stopping you and your family, or me and my family, from being the type of person who exhibits all of these same characteristics? It's irrespective of the environment in which they live. Whether we're small town or large town, we have a little more, we have a little less. Some better years, some leaner years. That doesn't seem to matter at all in this story. Is it possible that you could create a home environment where children who come into your home or others who are a part of that find themselves spiritually flourishing and encouraged because you and your spouse or your family members are leading because of who you are as God's people? It is in that type of environment, I am sure, that they were an encouragement to their extended family, to the congregation, the synagogue that would gather in Nazareth and elsewhere, the people who were around them would have been improved by the presence of Joseph and Mary and their family. What about a congregation? We're going to jump forward now 2,000 years. Would the congregation where you worship be encouraged and strengthened by the fact that you and your family members exhibit character, regardless of your situation in life, you exhibit character like fairness, self-discipline, a willingness not to deliver evil for evil, but good for evil. That you would be teachable or coachable to, you know, based upon the Lord's expressed will, that you would help foster an environment, an atmosphere where everyone in your home breathes the thought of, I want to live with a very clear sense of compass. I'm following the way that the Lord is directing for people to live and to go. Is that the type of home that I am a part of creating? And not just as it bless my family, What does it do for the people who are trying to do the same in the local congregation or the body where I worship? Strong families are tied to strong congregations. Strong congregations are a support to strong families. They're meant to be linked together like this. But I just thought it was very interesting to look at the family into which Jesus was born and to notice what might not have been there, but the elements that were absolutely present. And to think that on all the human race, in all the periods of human history, that God would look down and say, you know what? I want those two young people who've never had a child before in their lives, who've never set up a home together or run a household together, I pick them to be the ones to whom I will grant the rearing of Jesus and so forth. Why? Because the character 
that they demonstrated. And Rick is humble. I, I confess, I, I think about these things, and I think about the guy that I shave with in the mirror every morning. And um, do, I, do I exhibit the same types of things? Perfectly? Absolutely not. Do I want to? Absolutely I do. And I try my best. And I know the same is true for any of us. It's a target. It's a goal. You know, Joseph and Mary weren't perfect either. The only one perfect in the household was Jesus. You know, the children were good, but then they reached a point where they didn't do what they ought to have done, and up, things fell apart. But their hearts were good, and their desire was right, and they created a space. What that does is not just bless their family, but blesses every family and every church group or every religious family that is around them. They go together together. In the last 15 minutes or so that we've got, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes and talk about some additional elements that have to be a part of this that are also needing to be a part of our families and our communities, our, our congregations. First of all, when we talk about this, there are spiritually minded figures who are intent on doing what the Lord says, number one. Intent on doing what the Lord says. That has a spiritual component, it has a moral component, it has a character component, of course. Joseph was willing to do what was right and to marshal, you know, his to self-discipline and do what was right even when he thought he'd been wrong. I'm sure that they reared their family to stay away from things that are compromising and that are evil and immoral and to stay with things that are wholesome and right and upright. It was the year, it was in the 1760s, 1768, I think, that John Newberry published a book that was intended to be a children's book and it was, it was really a story that was built off of a Cinderella type of theme. Uh, the main figure in this story was named Marjorie Meanwell. Marjorie Meanwell. And she was uh, an orphan, young girl, and, you know, had nothing. In fact, through this story, she walked around with one shoe. She, she didn't have two shoes to wear. She had one. She was poor. And she went along through her early years, and one day she crossed paths with a rich gentleman who blessed her by giving her two shoes. He gave her a pair of shoes to wear on her feet. Well, she was so excited that she started calling herself two shoes, because she had two shoes now for her feet. She went back and she told the person who took care of her and helped rear her and others. And through the story, she is a, a good person. She grows up, takes care of business, does things well. But she's a, a, an upright person. As she enters adult years, she finally makes the acquaintance of a widower who ends up marrying her. He was very well off, very well to do. So it's kind of a rags to riches kind of story. But at the heart of it is this Marjorie girl that grows up and she's a very solid, strong character, positive character person. And the story you may have heard of is known as Goody Two-Shoes, or that's what she's referred to, Goody Two-Shoes. It was a story that was written and shared with children because implicit in this was the message, if you'll do good and you'll work hard growing up and you'll be a, a solid, good character person, good things are in your future too. Right? Kind of a way to hold the carrot out in front and you know, entice good living and and so forth. By the time you get to the turn of the 20th century, so we're in the 1800s to 1900s, all of a sudden this idea of Marjorie Meanwell and Goody Two-Shoes has changed. And now, instead, it is an insult. Because people use the phrase a Goody Two-Shoes or a Goody Goody to speak to someone that they, or about someone that they believe is overly virtuous. Someone who's too concerned with living a pure and upright life. They are too focused on moral positions and, and doing things that are wholesome and righteous. 
And so it becomes something of an insult. Even today, people may call us a holier-than-thou or a goody-two-shoes or or any of a number of varieties of those kinds of expressions meant to be insulting. My question would be, what about the situation with Mary and Joseph and Jesus' home and family? What about your family and my family? Is it characterized by a desire to do what is good and wholesome and right, regardless of what the people around us think? Are we trying to be too virtuous, too upright? Too holier than thou. Well, we don't ever want to be arrogant. We just want to be humble servants of the Lord. But there's nothing wrong at all with saying, in fact, it's right to be able to say, we're going to keep evil at arm's length, and we're going to keep things wholesome in our presence. I don't control every other family's life. I don't know what goes on in that household or or that one or whatever, but I, I know what mine looks like, and I know what God would like for it to look like. If you were to look in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse number 3 and verse number 4, Peter is writing to Christians who have made a shift in life. We would say they turned over a new leaf. 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4. Would someone mind reading those couple of verses nice and loud when you get there? Okay, great. Thank you very much for reading. All right, now in those words, he's speaking to people who previously lived this way. They were in the world, did things that would be normal or standard, we might say. These are figures who turned over the new leaf, decided that the way of living for Christ is the right way to go. That's what they want to do. Now, what are the people from their past saying about them? Oh, you're a goody-goody, aren't you? You're too good to do with us, with you know, to go out with us and do these things that you used to do, right? Oh, found religion, did you? Oh, now you're a holier than that. I mean, all of these cutting remarks that are meant to make someone feel bad about striving for noble character and behavior. And in these verses, Peter essentially says, "Do not let them pull you back into their orbit." In fact, in verses five and six. He makes the point, he says, you realize, of course, that the people who are saying these things to you are people who are also going to have to answer to God above. And we're going to have to explain why they've chosen to live the way that they live, even when they've come in contact with the possibility of a new and better way of living. So he says, do not let them shame you or embarrass you or pressure you to give up being high character, high quality. He says, that is exactly who you want to be. The type of person that Jesus was. You know, Jesus got a pretty good modeling of those kinds of things, apparently, at his home as well. If we want a good, wholesome, and healthy family, one component is to make sure that we keep at bay or at arm's length evil and ugly, and we embrace things that are moral and upright. Things that Jesus would be willing to embrace with a smile. I guess if we summarize it all, we could borrow the words from, uh, from Paul in Philippians 4 and verse number 8. He has a great statement there that is, I think, applicable or useful in just about any situation. But in Philippians 4 and verse 8, he just lays down some parameters 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which is his way of excluding anything that compromises that. It is not worthy of your attention. The phrase gigo comes to mind, G-I-G-O. Garbage in leads to garbage out. You've got another option. We do. I guess we could call it Rero. Almost sounds like something from Scooby-Doo, right? R-I-R-O. When righteousness goes in, righteousness comes out. When Christ-like thoughts inhabit our minds and our spirit, then Christ-like words and actions come out because they dictate who we are, how we live. I am sure that Jesus saw the nobler characteristics that demonstrated in his home. We would like for our family members to see the same thing. In a congregation like this one, or maybe where you worship if it's elsewhere, wouldn't it be great to know that the congregation is embracing wholesomeness and righteousness and all of the things that cause trouble and strife and difficulties, hard feelings, evil temptations that feed them, all of those things are kept out there because they compromise who we are and who we want to be. I'm glad Jesus grew up in an environment like the one that he did and and that we have the chance to create the same things in our families and in our homes and in our congregations. We'll close with this last illustration. We were talking uh, in class the other day about uh, Yellow Brick Road and the Wizard of Oz. And here's Dorothy and she's gotten from her home and she's in this land that's so strange and foreign to her and she knows she's a traveler she's trying to get back to Kansas. She's got her faithful companion Toto with her and and one of the things that they need to do is get to see this Wizard of Oz in the Emerald City. And he looks around like, I don't know how to get there. I've never been there before. Okay, here is a path. You see this yellow brick road? Yes. You follow that and that will take you there and they'll let you know how to get home. So the story is all about the challenges of her staying on this yellow brick road. It is a path to get to the right place, the destination of home. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but strong families and strong congregations have a yellow brick road. Today we could call it a TomTom, a a Garmin or whatever, right? Uh, Or your cell phone, but it gives you a map to get to uh, your destination. Spiritually speaking, this is it. This is your yellow brick road, this is your tom-tom, whatever you want to say. Because here is God attempting to get us through the challenges, navigate the problems of life, to be able to celebrate and have the great moments. And in the end, be able to see Jesus and see God and say, my Savior, my brother, my God. And for them to be able to see us and say, my servant, my friend, my child. And then we be welcomed in the shores of heaven for all of eternity. Good congregations, good families, strong ones. Make sure that they walk and follow after the yellow brick road. Jesus' family did. Your family can. I need to. Good congregations do. I don't care where it leads me. I I don't have an agenda. I, I don't have a preference, really, other than I want to go wherever God says is the right pathway for me to walk. And I'm sure that that describes you as well. This is what gets us to the place where we want to be. Somebody says, well, no, it's the blood of Jesus. I I don't disagree with you at all. But where do I find information about that? Oh, yeah, it's right here. This takes me where I need to go. God's word is intended to do two things, to protect us 
from evil and harm, and to provide for us the guidance, the encouragement, the direction that we need to travel. Protect us and provide for us. How can my family be strong and healthy spiritually? By paying attention to the things that God has had to say here. How can a congregation be healthy and strong? By paying attention to the things that God has to say here. In Psalm 119, it is the single longest individual section of the Bible, right? something akin to a chapter. The entirety of Psalm 119, all 172 verses, is focused entirely upon the power of God's Word to educate us, to steer us, and to lead us to heaven. God takes it seriously, and so should we. God wants your family be strong, loving, and peace-filled. And he wants his family to be strong and loving and peace-filled. Let some of these characteristics describe our lives, and we're going to be just fine. May God bless us all. We are dismissed.